Good morning. Everybody doing all right? Excellent. Uh, my name is Carl Brower. I am uh, one of the ministers on staff here at the Parkway Church, and it is, uh, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited to be with you. I'm excited to, to look at the Word of God together with you. Um, and as uh, Mike Boss, one of our elders, just read, we are going to be in the last four verses of chapter 9 of Romans. But before we jump into that, I want to share with you a quick story. Uh, when I was younger, I'm not 100% sure about the age, I was 9 or 10 or 23 or something, I was young, was probably around 10, uh, I had my heart set on a great many material things. Um, Part of that was due to the circumstances that we were having in our family at the time, which was we were kind of wealthy. There was a period of time where my father had done very well in business and we had a lot of disposable income. And so I kind of got what I wanted most of the time. And so I wanted lots of stuff. And one of the things I really, 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 really wanted was a television in my bedroom. I wanted my own TV. Now, for the record, I do not think now objectively, and especially based on my own experience, that that's actually a good thing. But at the time, as a 10-year-old boy, it was the pinnacle of my existence. Having a TV in my room would be the best. And I was able to convince my father to allow this. He decided to use this as a tool by which to teach me a little bit of patience, a little bit of work ethic, and things like this. He said, all right, I will let you have a TV in your room if you earn the money to buy it. I was like, Sweet. And so we get through the Sears catalog. I pick out a particular TV. It's like 250 bucks, which for a nine-year, 10-year-old kid is an infinite amount of money. But I thought, I could do this. I could do this. And I started doing odd jobs around the house, above and beyond the normal expectations of kiddom, right? Picking up stuff, cleaning stuff, fixing stuff, as good as a nine- or 10-year-old boy can. For two bucks here and five bucks there and a buck 50 there, I found a few neighbors that were willing to give me some odd jobs to do for a little extra cash, and I began to fill the coffers. I began to save this money. And then came this moment where I was kind of like, you know what, I like doing other stuff, and I kind of forgot about this, this, this mission that I was on. And my father, I think, really wanted to see me succeed, really wanted to see me kind of get to the finish line, and so he came and he sweetened the deal, and he said, listen, if you finish this up, if you get to your goal and buy that TV, I will throw in an Atari 2600. Now, I see your faces, and some of you are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Others of you are like, a 26, huh? I don't even, what are you? An Atari 2600 in the early 80s was one of the very first video game systems that you could buy and bring home and plug into your TV and play video games at home. That was a new thing, kids. It didn't always used to be this way. But my dad promised to get me one. Man, I got way more serious, right? More jobs, more dollars, fill in the coffers. And all of this time, December is getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And as you know, December contains the day that is the most important day to all children, Christmas. And it's not important to all children necessarily because of what it represents, which is the remembering of the birth of Christ, but rather presents. Right? And so here comes December. And the way we did it during this season of life, as I said, we were, we were doing pretty well financially. My mom would bring me a Sears catalog and a marker and say, circle the stuff you want. 
You got it. And we would literally get all that stuff. Not all, but most. We would get most of that stuff. We got so much stuff on Christmas for, for a few years. It was amazing. And so, as Christmas got near, thoughts of TV and earning money went away. And rightly so. Christmas, focus. I'm a child. I need to open presents. This is important. So Christmas Day comes, and we do what we usually do, which is me and my younger sister wake up and go into my older sister's bedroom. There's three of us. I'm in the middle of three. And we're all in her bedroom waiting in anticipation for mom to come and say, it's time. It's time for the fiesta to begin. Right? We, we were not allowed to come into the, into the living room until they were ready. So she comes, she brings us out, and wrapping paper and bows are flying everywhere, and everybody's like, and then we're done. And there's a mess. And man, Christmas, that's amazing. And then my dad did what lots of dads do, which was to do the thing that you see at the end of the movie, A Christmas Story, and say, hey, what's that over there? Oh, bonus presents, right? So he sends me into the garage where there's this brand new bicycle. Brand new bike, that's pretty sweet. Nine, 10 year old kid, new bike. I come back in. He says, Aaron, that's the name of my older sister, Aaron, why don't you go and look in your bedroom? Well, my sisters and I look at each other and we're like, what? Look in her bedroom. We just came out of there. How could there be anything in her bedroom? Is there magic too? And so we went down the hall to her bedroom. We walk in and there in her bedroom with this red bow on top on this wooden pedestal is a brand new color television, a 12-inch color television. And not just any 12-inch color television. The 12-inch color television that I had picked out months and months before that I was saving for. And so for just a moment, I thought, ooh, Dad, ugh, put that in the wrong room. That's mine. But after a couple minutes, I realized, no, that's not mine. That's hers. And there was this frustration in me that said, wait a minute. I have worked really hard for this. I've been striving for this. I've been pursuing this. And I don't get it. She doesn't even care. I mean, she's probably going to watch TV now, but she wasn't pursuing that. She wasn't trying to get that, and she gets it. That doesn't seem right. But it was just because of the grace and love and generosity of our father that she got the TV that day. And I share that story with you because it's similar to what we're going to see in this text, that Paul is going to be showing us that there's a group of people who were striving after something, and they didn't get it. And there's another group of people who were not striving after something, and they did get it. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this text one more time, and then I want us to pray, and then we're going to jump into it, okay? So we are at the end of chapter 9 in Romans, starting in verse 30, going to the end of the chapter. It reads, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, I ask for you to be near to us this morning. We are grateful that we have the opportunity to to gather in this room and to consider your word together as a church, and we ask for you to be near to us, that by your Spirit you would illuminate the truth of this Word to us, give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done, that we might know you better, 
and therefore love you more, and then worship you more rightly. We ask for you to help us. We need you, God, and we're grateful that we can be here today. Be near to us. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay, so so far in the book of Romans, Paul has kind of covered a lot of ground, right? He's talked about the Jew-Gentile relations stuff. He's talked about salvation. He's talked about faith and sovereignty, election, predestination. So we've worked through a lot of difficult doctrines together as we've walked through this text. And this morning, we're going to see Paul kind of returning to this Jew-Gentile conversation. But this time, it's going to be something slightly different. Whereas what we've mostly seen in the past in this book is Paul kind of giving the Jews a rebuke for kind of looking down their nose at the Gentiles, thinking somehow you're better than them because you're Jewish. That's not what Paul's going to be arguing here. There's something uh, a little more subtle, something a little less obvious, especially in light of the ways that we look at the Scripture today. And I'll, I'll try to unpack the subtlety of that argument as we get through it. But for now, Paul's going to show us how faith and not the law is the vehicle through which righteousness is obtained. He's going to be using the Gentiles getting it and the Jews not getting it as the example why which he's going to make this point. And so let's jump into this. Verse 30, he says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? And so what does that mean? The main point of this verse is just this. Gentiles who were not trying to get this right standing with God do indeed get it. And so the first phrase, the first thing in this verse is this question, what shall we say then? And Paul is asking his reader, he's asking the church in Rome, he's asking you, he's asking me to make an inference into his teaching. He's saying, after all that I've told you, what have you learned? What can you deduce from this teaching? Now, this always reminds me, every time Paul asks these rhetorical questions, it always reminds me of this guy that I went to college with who would answer rhetorical questions. It drove me crazy. You'd say something like, hey, you know what? And he'd go, no, I don't, but I bet you're going to tell me. Yes, I'm going to tell you, and I might also punch you in the face. <laughs> no, I, I didn't get that upset. But here's the thing. He did that so much that occasionally I will now do that to other people. If you see me doing this, I need you to speak up. Because I really, really don't like it. Okay? That has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. That's just for free. So he says, what shall we say then? What have you learned? What can we get from this? And he answers, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. So first, I want us to remember who the Gentiles are. Who are the Gentiles? They're anyone who's not a Jew, any non-Hebrew, right? The people who are outside of the promise. These are not the descendants of Abraham. These are not God's covenant chosen people. And so he's talking about non-Jews and how they did not pursue righteousness, but the question then is, what kind of righteousness is Paul speaking of? What is he talking about in particular when he uses this word righteousness? Is he talking about a moral righteousness, just doing good stuff? Or is he talking about a legal righteousness where God declares someone to be righteous and perfect and spotless and clean, not because of anything they've done, because of his grace? Which one is he talking about? Because Paul's used this word in both ways as we walk through the text of Romans. And so if it were moral righteousness that he was speaking of, then he would basically be saying that the Gentiles weren't pursuing doing good stuff. Well, of course they would have been. There would have been Gentiles who did not kill people because they thought it was the right thing to do. There would have been Jews who did not rape and did not steal because they knew that it was the right thing to do, not to honor God. So of course they were, and we see that even today. 
we see non-believers, people outside of God's covenant community, doing good deeds all the time. And so it can't really mean that. Really saying that the Gentiles would would not be pursuing doing good deeds would be like saying Zach Lee is not pursuing being a pirate. Of course he is. Of course Zach wants to be a pirate, but not for the right reasons. He just wants to wear the patch and see how long he can go without getting scurvy. So logically, it must be not this righteousness of morality, but this righteousness of declaration, this righteousness of of a legal type. And that would make perfect sense. It would make perfect sense that the Gentiles weren't pursuing right standing before God because they didn't know they needed it. They didn't have the law. They were outside of the Jewish community. They would not have been given God's law that would then shine a light on their sin that they would then know their depravity and separation from God and thereby know that they needed some other legal status. So, of course, they wouldn't have been pursuing it. So, logically, we can arrive at the conclusion that he's speaking of this legal type of righteousness that that is what is being mentioned here. But even better, Paul just answers it in the very next phrase in this verse. Carl, did you just walk us through all of this logical thought only to tell us that Paul's just going to give us the answer? Yes. Yes, I did. It's good for you. Deal with it. Here we go. So what is he saying? He says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And so what does that mean, a righteousness that is by faith? Paul's already talked about this. He's already made this distinction clear. Back in the first chapter, in the fourth chapter of Romans, he says in uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in chapter 4, he's going to make this really strong connection with Abraham and talking about how Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. He's already made a strong connection between faith and righteousness, and this righteousness being a right standing before God. And so what does this verse 30 really mean? As we said, it's just that Gentiles who were not trying to pursue this kind of righteousness with God do indeed get it. Verse 31, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. What does this mean? It just means Jews that were wanting and striving after a right standing with God through the law failed. They wanted and were striving after this kind of righteousness through the law, but they failed. And so two quick points to make here. One, we want to remember who Israel is. Israel is the covenant people of God. It is the descendants of Abraham. It is the children of the promise. This is God's chosen people. These are the Jews. That's who Israel is. And second, let's be clear on what Paul means by the law. He is speaking of the Mosaic law. He's talking about the law that was given to Israel in the desert from God to Moses. This is what he's speaking of. And so now let's look carefully at what Paul says that the Jews are pursuing, because he doesn't say that the Jews are pursuing the law. He also doesn't just say that they're pursuing righteousness. He says they're pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness. What in the world does that ambiguous, weird phrase mean? Why is that not more clear? What he means is just this, that Paul's talking about the idea that the fulfillment of the law brings about righteousness. The law leads to righteousness in its fulfillment if the law 
is fulfilled, if every tiny requirement of the law is met, then it brings about righteousness. But if any tiny bit is not brought about, if any demand of the law is not made, then it does not bring about righteousness. In fact, logically, then it brings about unrighteousness. So either you have the law perfectly fulfilled, and then you have righteousness, or you have it not perfectly fulfilled, and you have unrighteousness. This would be like uh, a space shuttle launch. Who here is familiar with the space shuttle program of NASA in the United States? A moderate number of hands. Great. So NASA is this group that for a long time shot rockets into space, explored stuff, did some cool things. We could talk about that all day. I love that sort of thing. I'm a super nerdy guy. But that's not the point. The point is, if you have this rocket that you're about to launch, has a million parts, you have all these teams of people with all these little checklists, and they're all going around and checking to make sure that everything is right. They're checking every nut and every bolt and every gasket and every wire and every fuel line and every little thing. And if all of those things are done right and everything's set up correctly, then that thing's going to launch and it's going to be awesome and it's going to come back home and everybody's going to be happy. But if something's missed, if something's overlooked, that thing's going to explode. It's not going to work at all. It's either all perfect and, and right and you get a launch or it isn't and you don't. And that's what's happening with the law. That's what Paul is trying to help us to see. It is the fulfillment of the law that leads to righteousness. So what is the main point here of verse 31? Jews tried to get this righteousness, this right standing before God through the law, but they failed. So let's look at the first half of verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So what is he saying here? He's asking, why did the Jews fail? Because they tried to get righteousness through the law instead of by faith. So he's asking the million-dollar question here. Why? Why what? Why did they fail? Why did the Jews not achieve righteousness through the law? And the answer is because they didn't pursue it by faith, as if it were based on works, as if they had the ability to fulfill the law, right? They didn't see faith in Christ as being the vehicle through which they would receive righteousness. They were thinking that works of the law, that somehow obeying the law is going to be this vehicle that brings about righteousness. Vehicle makes you think of driving a car, right? So if faith in Christ uh, is a car, that you were talking about a 2018 like supercharged 12-cylinder Maserati and the trying to get it through the law is like getting a 1972 Ford Pinto with four flat tires and a blown head gasket. Like, that thing's not going to get you anywhere. You can't get there because you can't get it with the way it needs to be, perfectly fulfilled. Because didn't we just say a minute ago that the law could somehow get righteousness? Yes, only in its fulfillment. It is only fulfilled in Christ. The Jews were incapable of attaining fulfillment of the law because it must be perfectly obeyed. It is only perfectly obeyed and fulfilled in Christ. So the main point of the first half of verse 32, why did they fail? Because they tried to get righteousness through the law instead of by faith. Now, I want to take a quick break from the text and talk just a minute about something that I think is important. And we did cover some of this in theological equipping this morning, but it's important for us to take a break and to say exactly what Paul is talking about. Because if we don't clearly interpret these texts, we are going to take something that we already think and try to put it on the text. 
we are going to have some presupposition that's going to lead us to believe something slightly off about what Paul's actually saying. So I want to try to unpack that subtlety that I mentioned in Paul's argument back in the beginning. And Paul's not being subtle because he's trying to be sneaky or coy or something like this. It's subtle because of us. We have presuppositions that we bring onto this text. Because we've grown up in this Western evangelical kind of Reformed Baptist culture that is greatly influenced by Martin Luther, what we have here is this idea that any time we see the Jews being critiqued, legalism. We think it's legalism which legalism is the pursuit of salvation through works, trying to achieve salvation, trying to be saved by doing stuff. And that legalism is rightly placed in some cases, right? Some, many of the Pharisees would have indeed been legalists in spite of the fact that the Jewish people at that time did not necessarily hold that position. They did not hold that you would uh, somehow be able to achieve righteousness through your works, that's in, that ends up being how it played out for the Pharisees and for others. But because of Luther's influence, we've arrived at this place where every time we see a critique of the Jews, we think legalism. They are trying to earn faith by works. They've got to stop that. But that's not what's being said. That's not Paul's argument. He's saying something different. He's saying something more subtle, right? What we do is we look at this 1972 Ford Pinto with the flat tires and blown head gasket, and we want to put a legalism bumper sticker on that thing. But that's not what Paul's saying. That's not his point. He's not arguing against Pelagianism, right? Pelagius, ooh. Everybody remember this? No? I'm bringing it back. Paul's talking about the idea that righteousness cannot be attained through works of the law, but it is attained through a perfection of the law, a fulfillment of the law in Christ, he is talking about this idea that righteousness cannot be attained unless it has been perfectly fulfilled, which is only done in Christ, and therefore only in faith in Christ will it be had. So he's making the point that the Jews were not trying to somehow get salvation, and why not? Why wouldn't they be trying to get salvation? Because they already thought they had it. The Jews already said, I'm in. I'm already part of this family. I was born a Jew. I'm part of Israel. I'm good to go. I don't need to get salvation. I have it because of my ethnicity. I just want to know how to stay here. I just want to know how to do it right. I just want to know how to keep this salvation. I just want to know how I can get the grace that I know God wants to give to me in righteousness, and I think I will get it through the law. So the question isn't about whether the Jews are trying to earn salvation. The question is, the Jews think they have salvation. They understand that salvation is a gift of grace. The question is, where do you go to get the grace? And they think they go to the law. And Paul's saying they've missed it. The only place to go for that grace is faith in Christ. So as far as the Jews are concerned, they are already a part of God's family because they are a part of the nation of Israel. And Paul's saying that's not it. Suggesting that the Jews are somehow going to be able to achieve righteousness through the law is like saying, it's like, it's like saying Tim is trying to pursue having a good voice. He's already got one. All he's doing now is trying to figure out how to keep it, right? So he's in his office listening to Aaron Neville things over and over and over. I don't like Aaron Neville's voice. You might. So Jews are thinking that they are 
achieving righteousness through the law. Do you see how this is subtle? They're not trying to accomplish salvation through their works. They think that they have it. They're trying to find out how to keep it and to be righteous. And that's only found in Christ. And they're looking for it in the law. Okay, let's get back to the text. And let's move on to the, the last half of 32 as, long, as well as 33. Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what does this verse and a half mean? That the Jews' failure was predicted in the Old Testament, and that it is God's sovereign will that they would stumble over Jesus and fail to achieve the righteousness that they were seeking in the law. And so let's work backwards. I want to work backwards through this verse Uh, this verse and a half. So the last three words here are put to shame. We tend to think of shame being something, I feel bad, I'm embarrassed, people are making fun of me because of my behavior. But that's not what Paul's saying. When Paul says, whoever believes in him will not to be put to shame, he's talking about something eternal. He's talking about something eschatological. He's talking about those who believe in him, Jesus, will not be eternally put to shame. It's something different than what we tend to think of with that word. Then we have these two phrases, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. These phrases are making clear to us the biblical reality that the Messiah is not universally accepted or celebrated. The gospel is offensive. It is a rock of offense. Following Jesus requires that one deny themselves, even die to themselves, to take up their cross and to follow Christ. And that is a stumbling block to many. And so then what is this stumbling stone? Jesus. Jesus himself is the stumbling stone that Paul is saying that they are stumbling over. They're stumbling over Jesus. And so we've got this Old Testament quote that's being used, and it's not really just one single verse that's being quoted. Uh, Paul has taken some verses from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, and he smushed them together in order to help us see and to highlight the reality of what's being said, that Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, according to Isaiah, who Paul is agreeing with, and Peter will use these same two verses later to do the same thing. They're saying Jesus is the stumbling stone for those who do not believe. What does it even mean? What does it mean to stumble over Jesus? What does that even mean? Think of it like this. Imagine you are in a cabin in the woods in the middle of winter. It's your family cabin. Your dad taught you how to take care of it. His granddad taught him how to take care of it. And here you are in the middle of winter, and you have a big cast iron stove in the middle of the one-bedroom cabin. And your job is to feed the fire, keep that thing going to heat the cabin. But you have all the windows open and the door open. Yes, in this example, you are not very smart. So if you don't like that, just imagine it's the person sitting next to you. Or imagine it's Zach or Tim. Anybody else that makes you feel a little bit better. But at the end of the day, whoever is doing this has got the windows open because that's what dad taught them. And every time you bring a load of wood into the stove, there's this little box on the floor and you trip over it and you're like, man, and then you put the wood in there and no matter how big you build that fire, no matter how much you stoke the flames, that cabin's not gonna get warm. It might be just a little bit warm right next to the stove, but that cabin's not heating up. But you just keep on doing it and you keep tripping over that box and you keep feeding that fire. Then you have a friend come over and your friend watches you bring a load of wood in, trip over the box and put the wood in the fire and they say, man, why don't you just use that box? You're like, huh? 
They say, you open the box, there's a switch. If you, if you flip the switch, all these windows close and the central heat and air turns on. And it's 72 degrees in here all winter. You don't have to use any of that wood. You can keep it for later. You don't have to mess with that anymore. You don't have to worry about that anymore. And you look at that switch and you say, I don't know, this is what my dad taught me. This is what my granddad did. I'm just going to keep doing it. And you just keep on feeding that fire. And you refuse to use the thing that's given to you right there in front of you to give you what you are looking for, which is a warm cabin. But you stumble over the very thing that was given to you for that purpose. So like you, or the person sitting next to you, if you didn't like being the example, the Jews kept on taking wood to the stove even though the solution was right in front of them. So why did the Jews miss this? And for the record, it isn't all the Jews that miss it. God does indeed rescue and save a remnant of his people. There are some Jews who understand and hear and believe on Christ. This is not an indictment on all Jews, but there are many Jews that did not understand, that did not believe. So why did they miss it? This is the tough part. Because it was God's will that they would. This is why Paul is giving us these Old Testament verses. He is pointing to the Old Testament saying, we should not be surprised. This was God's will. This was God's sovereign will that this is how it would play out. God chose that they would reject Christ and stumble over him and be unsuccessful in attaining the righteousness that they wanted. And they believed bad theology. They believed wrong things about God, and they missed it. It is their stubborn, willful rejection of Christ and God's sovereign will that causes them to miss it. It is both. Okay, so to sum all this up, what is Paul trying to teach us in this text? He wants us to see that God, in his sovereignty, elected many Gentiles who were outside of the covenant. He brings them in because it is not by works or ethnicity or birth or anything else. It is only the sovereign will of God and the gift of grace through faith in Christ that salvation is to be had, and that he elected a remnant of the Jews that he elected some to come to faith and some to not. He wants us to see this, and he wants us to see that the Jews did not receive it, both because they stumbled over Christ in their willful rejection and because it was God's sovereign will. They kept on bringing that wood to the stove and never heated the house. Now, for us, now, looking back, reading this text, we can easily say, man, those poor Jews, all they had to do is flip that switch, man. Oh, I don't know why they didn't do it. And we can get to where we focus on this idea that we should see and pity these people who rejected Christ. But church, let me encourage you to instead say, how am I like them? Where am I looking for this righteousness of God? Where am I trying to accomplish right standing before God in some place apart from faith in Christ. We are much more like them than we may care to admit. Maybe you're looking for righteousness in just being a good Christian. You check off all the boxes, you go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you go to community group, you're going to come to night of worship on Friday because you think somehow that's going to cause you to measure up. Maybe you're looking for righteousness and being a good parent. You think being a good mom or being a good dad is going to get it for you. Teach your kids to be polite. Teach them how to read and write. Teach them how to be nice to people. Look them in the eyes when they talk. 
Get them to get good grades? Get them to say they love Jesus? Get them baptized? You think that doing all these things will earn you favor with God? Maybe you're looking for righteousness in your own humility, in your self-deprecation. You are the first one to confess your sins. You are, woe is me, I'm the worst. How could God possibly love me? I'm, the, I'm a wretch of a sinner. Because you think God's going to look upon your piety and give you favor for it. Maybe you're looking for righteousness in your giving or in your serving. If you are kind enough to the poor, if you're generous enough with your finances, if you serve in enough ministries, if you go on enough missions trips, that you'll gain favor with God somehow. And that he'll see you as more righteous because of your deeds. Maybe you're even looking for righteousness in your own knowledge. You study the scriptures, you memorize long passages, you own a set of Calvin's Institutes, and you've read every word. Because you think that in that knowledge that God's going to credit to you some more righteousness. And church, there's a couple things to say about this. One, none of those things are bad or sinful in and of themselves. It is not wrong to go to church. It's not wrong to pray or to read or to go to community group or raise your children in accordance with the Scriptures. It's not wrong to be humble, to confess your sin, and to be trying to kill it. It's not wrong to give or to serve or to study God's Word or to go on mission trips. It's only wrong if you do it in an effort to attain that which has already been earned for you in Christ. Jesus has fulfilled the law on your behalf. And if you love and trust Christ, that righteousness that he earned has been given to you in full. God declares you, Christian, to be righteous right now. He does not expect you to earn righteousness. He has given it to you. He looks at you and sees spotless and blameless and perfect. He sees you as an adopted son, as an adopted daughter. You have already had all that needs to be earned, earned for you. Christ has already done this work. So do these things. But do them with the freedom and the knowledge that Christ has already done the work for me. I don't have to earn. I don't have to seek after righteousness someplace else. I only have to seek it and I find it in my Savior. This is good news. Let's pray as the volunteers come forward to serve communion. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you love us, that you are for us, that you have given to us your Son, that you have purchased for us righteousness through his perfect life. He has attained that which could not be attained by the Jews in this text or by us. And so we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God. We're grateful that this is true, that the righteousness we need, we need to be perfect in order to be with you, has been earned for us by Christ, imputed to us by the Spirit, that you have declared us righteous if our hope is in Christ. And so we thank you that that's true. And we ask for you to be near to us, Lord, as we consider these realities 
Lord, forgive us where we seek after righteousness apart from Jesus, as if that's possible. Help us to be faithful. And Lord, for those of us who do not yet know you, who do not yet love and trust in Christ, we ask for you to be near to us. We ask for you to strengthen their hearts, give them an abundance of knowledge about you, and that you would illuminate their hearts to the truth of your word about who Christ is and what he's done, that they would know and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and only he can save them. So I thank you for your love and for your mercy and your grace to us in your word and most especially in your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So each week at Parkway, we practice communion. And if you are a believer in Christ and you have been obedient uh, to the Lord in baptism, we invite you to join us. There are two cups in here, one kind of stacked on top of the other. Make sure you grab both. And uh, here in just a moment, we will take communion together. So what we try to do each week is connect this act of communion with the text that we've read. And so very often we will think as we take communion of Christ's sacrifice for us, what he endured on the cross, the brutal beating he suffered, the agonizing death that he experienced, but we often will fail to remember and recognize that in his life, in his sinless, perfect life, he has endured all that the law demands and he has purchased for us this righteousness that we might be declared spotless and blameless and perfect before a holy God. His righteousness is ours, imputed to us by the Spirit as we are regenerated and rescued from the very fate that Christ willingly subjected himself to. So church, I want us to just take a minute or two and consider this reality. Consider that Christ has earned righteousness for you. And in a moment I'll pray, and then we'll take communion together. Father, we thank you that you love us. We pray that you'll be near to us as we take communion together. Lord, we ask for you to strengthen our hearts in uh, remembering this reality, remembering this righteousness that is afforded to us, that is imputed to us because of the perfect life of Christ. So be near to us now. We love you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.